0: (laughs) nagin farsad is a comedian she does stand-up she hosts a podcast she's made films she wrote a book called how to make white people laugh some of nagin's funniest stuff is when she talks about family in her act like this bit where she tells her mom she needs to get an std test
1: to say to your mom, look, lady, I fucked a bunch of dudes and I might be diseased. But to say that in Farsi, in a a language where I, I don't know what the word is for sex, nor do I know that there is a word for sex, is all the more radically awkward because my mom was like, eh, Negin, why are you scared? Have you had intergender flesh relation? Yes lady I've had intergender have you had intergender flesh relation without security of external safety product
0: <laughs> This is the longest shortest time I'm Hillary Frank today Nagin Farsad joins us for another installment of Kids Unanswerable Questions Remember that's where you send us questions that popped into your kids weird little heads and and we invite a comedian to try and answer those questions Thanks to your kids, Nagin today is going to tackle questions on esoteric allergies, internal monologues of bad guys, and um, a thing about witches that only a child could imagine. We'll get to those kid questions in a bit. Um, First, we're going to hear more about how Nagin's parents have been a driving force behind her comedy. And um, just a quick note, if you're thinking of listening to this with your kid, head over to LongestShortestTime.com, episode 111, where we've edited down kid-friendly versions of her answers. Nagin's parents moved to the States from Iran in the late 70s. They lived in Connecticut, then Virginia, before finally settling in Palm Springs, California.
1: My dad is a heart surgeon, like cardiovascular, thoracic guy. And um, so his buddy was like, Oh my God, like you should come to Palm Springs. There's all these old people that have heart attacks. It's like totally your scene. And so that's how we ended up in Palm Springs. Uh, but yeah, but it was weird because I was the only kid um, in my neighborhood and it was, it, was all, <laughs> it was all senior citizens.
0: And tell me about your parents. Tell me about growing up in your family.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've often like said that my parents were a lot like, um, Guantanamo Bay prison guards. Um, and I mean that in the best way, like they were, you know what I mean? I just mean that they, there was, it was a strict home. Like I remember when I was first trying to go to a high school dance, I wasn't allowed to because my parents thought it was like this sinful, crazy thing. And I was like, but everybody's parents lets them go to homecoming or whatever it was. And, and I don't know why, I mean, I was battling for something for which I had no date I mean, I don't know what I was back. I mean, it's not like everyone was knocking on my door to like take me to homecoming, but um, but I guess it was the principle of the matter, and uh, you know, so like they weren't wouldn't let me go to dances. Like
0: that was a big deal. Did they ever hold over your head? Like when we were kids, it was like this.
1: Um. I could never compete with those stories. You know what I mean? It was like my mom would be like, when we were kids, my father was in a hiding because they thought he was communist and they were coming to raid the home. You know, and I was like, all right, I'm not, you know, I can't compete with communist raids or whatever. <laughs> like, And so— um, Again, just in terms of where Iran was, when they were growing up in the whatever it was, the 50s and 60s, Iran was in a far different place than America was, you know. So they—and also— We know, I would be like, do you like this song by Elvis? Never heard of it. You know what I mean? And so it's sort of these cultural, like, differences, I think. Those things I always envied because I just didn't have the same kind of cultural language as my parents did. And, you know, besides we spoke Farsi at home um, or Azerbaijani, we randomly spoke both languages at home. And so— you know, we didn't—it it just wasn't the same kind of connection that you see in the movies where the parent is playing a, like, Joni Mitchell song for the kid, explaining what it means. You know, like, that, that's just not the kind of thing that happened at home for me. Um, and, uh, and so there's something there where you kind of—you end up leaning more on your peer group for that kind of cultural memory.
0: Did they want to make you culturally Iranian?
1: I mean, I think they wanted me, Yeah, you know, it's so weird because I did such a 180 on them by becoming a comedian.
0: McGinn studied politics in college. Her first job out of grad school was as a policy advisor for New York City.
1: I think that in the beginning, they were hoping that I would be, you know, like, a, like a quieter person who went into like a stabler job and like, um, and just got married and had kids. And I, you know, I think that's not just, like, an Iranian parent's wish. That's probably—every parent wants your kid to just be, like, rising through the ranks of some stable job and then having a bunch of grandchildren. Like, that's (laughs) totally normal, and that's what my parents wanted. Um, And so for me to, you know, become a comedian was— um, I think in the beginning, embarrassing because I said a bunch of things that were considered shameful. You know, like what? I mean? what? Well, I mean, just to talk about dating and like you know your genitals on stage um, is embarrassing for any parent. Again, this is like not particular to Iranians. I think most parents are like, do I want to hear my daughter talking about boning a guy? <laughs> Um, But uh, but it was something you know that. Um, over time that they saw like what I was like trying to do with the comedy um that they became you know something approaching
0: proud when w- when was that moment <laughs> like when did you know
1: oh um well it's actually interesting because a few you know some some years ago um i remember i had just kind of finished making um, my last film the muslims are coming you know which is has this like it's like this comedy but it's a social justice kind of activisty film and um and I you know I couldn't pay for a, a, a plane ride to go home. Like, I didn't have the money, you know? And um, and I said to my parents, like, look, like, I don't have it. If you can pay for this plane ride, then I'll come home for Christmas, you know, for Muslim Christmas, you know? And my dad's like, yeah, yeah, that's no problem. We'll pay for a plane ticket. And I was, and I just started crying. I was like, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be able to pay for my own plane tickets. By now, this is really humiliating or whatever. And, and he said, no, why? You're, you're doing something that takes longer to figure out. Um and uh, you know, you're like a scientist. And and I was like, what? And he's like, you know, scientists they work on something for their whole lives, the cure for cancer, whatever it is. And um they might not find the solution in their lifetime, but whatever work they're doing it it, it bi- gets built on it by future generations and that's what you're doing um, you know so you might not figure out the answer to like you know world peace through comedy in your lifetime but someone else is going to build on your work and i was and 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 i was like he said that yeah, to you yeah, yeah that's what he said wow. to me and um and i was like really shocked because i didn't realize he understood what i was trying to do and that he was okay that it was that it could be forever unstable or not
0: and is that what you're trying to do with your comedy, is, is like, make world <laughs> peace through your comedy?
1: I mean, like, I'm trying, you know, I'm not a delusional person. Like, I know I, I am not going to, you know, end all world conflicts personally, um, but I want to have a part in it, you know what I mean? I want to do what I can for my small corner of the world um, through my kind of uh, social justice charged dick and fart jokes um, <laughs> and, and hope that that does something, yeah.
0: As a political comedian, Nagin is, of course, always following the news. In her work, she talks about all the stuff of the day, like immigration debates, the election, Black Lives Matter. And she says it can be really illuminating to see that stuff through her parents' eyes.
1: And also to see them really, really like grow with some of those issues. I mean, I remember, you know, my fiance is black and but you know, I, I talk about my parents like having their like requisite moment of racism because they were like, you know, why are you dating a black man? And um and and then, you know, of course they get over it in like five minutes into meeting him and they love him and it's great and they prefer him to me and whatever, I'm over it. But um, I think what's interesting is then to get a call from my mom to talk about Black Lives Matter because now she has a a person that she she's like Black Lives Matter because my daughter's fiancé, you know, and that's really important. World peace. You're doing it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One parent at a time. Coming up, allergies your doctor never told you existed. Stay with us. We are back with comedian Nagin Farsad, and it's time to hear her answers to your kids' unanswerable questions. We gave Nagin these questions beforehand so she'd have a chance to think them over a bit. So here's the first kid. My name is Shelby. I'm five. Um, I'm wondering if I'm allergic to falling. This question from Shelby is, I wonder if I'm allergic to falling. Right. Um,
1: Yeah. I mean, like, my answer to Shelby is that, like, that everybody is allergic to falling um, because it's our body's way of reminding us that we should either be standing or sitting or, like, responsibly running um, and basically everything but falling. You know what I mean? So, like, the allergy to falling is to help you remember not to fall and to try and keep your body grounded. Um, So yes, Shelby, you are allergic to falling. And if you're like me, you're also allergic to uh, dust mites. Um, And I'm just quoting my allergy doctor here. Um, I'm also allergic to 75% of trees, all known grasses. um, And my favorite is a winter mold. So I have uh, basically seasonal allergies in every season. I do too. (laughs) Really? Yes. It's the we're, worst. We're like allergy twins. <laughs> totally. There's like two weeks out of every season where I don't
0: have an allergy. So when I was a kid, um, I would tell other parents that I was allergic to soda because my parents didn't allow me to have soda. And so there was one time I can remember being like five or six years old and at a birthday party where we like went to the zoo or something and they were like, Hillary, what kind of soda do you want? And I was like, oh, I can't have soda. I'm allergic. And the parent just like laughed in my face and I didn't understand why. <laughs> but
1: that's great. Like that's a great tactic, don't you think? Like, yeah. Like have you used that?
0: Like with my kid? Yeah. Um, like you're allergic to candy <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> on
0: Halloween, only on Halloween.
1: <laughs> no. My parents used a similar tactic on me when I went to kindergarten or Or preschool, or whatever. The first day I came home, I started speaking English to my parents. And my Mm -hmm. parents are like, oh no, we gotta cut that out immediately. And so my dad pretended like he didn't understand English.
0: Oh, he was allergic to English. He was allergic
1: to English. And I and then I was like, oh, like, I'm going to take on my role as a UN interpreter and explain to my dad everything about the world in Farsi because he doesn't speak English, you know? Uh-huh. And so it was like one of these lies that he started. But then it just sort of stuck with me forever. Like, I never, ever spoke English to my parents. Um, and, you know, and it worked. Well, let's hear the
0: next kid. Hi, I'm Lennox. I'm five. Do bad guys think they are good guys? <laughs> okay. I love this question from Lennox. Do bad guys think that they're good guys? <laughs> um, I mean,
1: the way I look at it, bad guys are like in three basic categories, right? Like there's the bad guys who are smart and they know exactly what they're doing and they know that they're bad guys. And they're like twirling their mustaches and like petting their cats and wearing a monocle. You know what I mean? So they're like the kind of classic villain bad guy who's smart who knows it. But then there's like the bad guy who's dumb and doesn't know that he's being bad. He just doesn't get it that it's bad and he, does, he just doesn't have the power of analysis to figure that out. And then there's the bad guy who who's smart but just hasn't ha- been exposed to anything but badness. And so he makes his decisions based on just what he's seen or whatever. So, um, So I think, you know— Like if you're a kid, you want to avoid the bad guys who are smart and know that they're bad and know what they're doing. Um, But with the other types, the ones who are like just haven't gotten enough exposure or they're they're just a little dumb and with a little bit more information, they could become a little smarter and probably like give up being bad. With those guys, I would say they need your help, you know,
0: so that they can stop being a bad person. They Without just, knowing that they're bad. Because that's the question. Do the bad guys know – do they think they're good guys? Right. No. Those guys think that they're good
1: guys because they just don't know any better. And those are the ones who I think need, uh, like need some support and help. And the thing is, like, I mean, if you look at um, – <laughs> this is, like, totally appropriate for children. But if you look at, like, the people who were put on trial for taking – Jews into gas chambers. Like Mm -hmm. those people are like, well, I was just following orders. So there's like people that are do really, really bad things and then push the responsibility off on some kind of authority structure or whatever. But if the order was like, you know, horribly killing someone, then that makes you.
0: So the order, let's just so. Did Hitler think of himself as a bad guy?
1: No, he thought of himself as a great guy because he loved Germany, and he was, like, trying to—he was trying to make Germany great again. Oh, God. And um, and he was, like, really trying to—I don't mean I get political, y'all.
0: I don't know. It's like after I heard this question, I just really—it really made me wonder. Is there anyone who thinks of themselves as a bad guy? I don't know. It's a, it's a very it's an astute question. It is. It and is. it is truly unanswerable. Do you do you feel like you've ever been a bad guy when you thought you were being a good guy?
1: Oh, you know there's moments where in your life where you know that you could handle something a little bit. I think if I've ever been you know if I ever did something bad, I knew deep down that I was. Um, And there's like just a couple of instances in my life where I was like, oh, I didn't like, you know, and this is he dumb, like, kind of dumb things. Like I remember there was a guy that my friend had a crush on and he was flirting with me and uh, and this was in high school. And like I – like nobody flirted with me. So it was like really exciting and I didn't stop him even though there was a bro code there where I was supposed to be like – you got to flirt with my friend, you know, or whatever. (laughs) And Uh in that moment, the like 20 minutes that that it lasted or something, I was like, I'm being a bad guy right now, you know? Um, And, but then I, you know, obviously like nothing happened ultimately, like good prevailed,
0: but, uh, but you know, you know, you know, deep down. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So we got a lot of questions about God and creation from kids. So let's hear the first one. This is Lucy, who is five. Okay, what's your question, Lucy? Um,
1: What cloud does God live behind?
0: Yeah, that's our question. What cloud does God live behind?
1: So I think that this is like a frequent misconception that God lives behind a cloud um, because I've actually figured out that God lives um, like inside of fire hydrants. Um, and the reason that I figure that out is because like a fire hydrant is sort of like it's a microcosm of the entire like mortal experience. You, you know, there's, um, it teaches people about the law, right? Like you see a fire hydrant, you know not to park there. So it teaches people like to maintain the social contract. It teaches people about punishment because if you do park there, you're going to get towed. Um, It teaches people, um, It it, dogs love fire hydrants. Uh, They pee on the fire hydrant and then the rain takes away the pee and then the dog pees on it again. So there's this kind of like cycle of peeing life with Uh the fire hydrant. Um, and, And then in the summertime in New York City... Fire hydrants can be a source of great pleasure to neighborhood children because they provide you with these things that you could like open up the fire hydrant legally and then play in the water, you know, and that's like this great, wonderful sound of children getting wet on a hot summer's day. And then the greatest thing about a fire hydrant is that it's there to protect people from Fire, right? Obviously, so there's, you know, you there's there's a there's a horrible um, fire that breaks out, and that fire hydrant could be tapped at any moment to save the lives of lots of people, right? So it's just like a lot is going on with this fire hydrant, and God likes to like sw- switch him up every day; he's in a different one, um, or she's in a different one. We don't really know the gender. Of the deity, so it's
0: not like you're imagining God is in every fire hydrant. It's just, I think no, I think God picks. I think God picks a fire hydrant per day just to see, like you know, just to get a
1: better sample set of like life in that particular region of the world.
0: So, so not behind a cloud,
1: yeah, because also clouds are sort of flimsy and they break apart and they def- they they become diffuse or whatever. And I don't think, and God is more into like something sturdier than that.
0: Do you believe in God?
1: I mean, I'm Muslim. Mm-hmm. So you know, in a sense, yeah. But I think I'm also like I've also never been too terribly concerned with the question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where I'm like, well, yeah, I'm Muslim and I'm fine, you know, with the with the cultural norms that come with that, and I'm fine with um being really secular, you know what I mean, and, like, having a, a glass of Chardonnay um, and still calling myself a Muslim and, and being, you know, very secular about it. I'm totally fine with all of that. And I'm, I'm fine not even knowing the answer to that question but kind of feeling like a like a kind of cheesy oneness with the universe.
0: Yeah, so how did your parents talk to you about religion when you were a kid?
1: Um they honestly like the religion had this weird place in my home because our grandparents would come and live with us for really long periods of time years at a time you know and my dad's parents were very very religious and so i would see religion manifests itself in, you know, my grandparents praying five times a day and my grandmother covering herself up when we went outside and, you know, just the kind of regular Muslim stuff. But they weren't, no, the one thing that's true about my family, I think it's true a lot about a lot of Iranian families is they never proselytize. So never, no one was ever like, hey, like, why do you got to wear those skorts? Like, you know, get with the, you know, hijab action or whatever. Like no one ever questioned anything I did or, or, or said, like that I should be more Muslim. It was never, I've never gotten that from a Muslim ever in my life. Um, And so Islam always struck me as like super, and this is not remotely the international reputation that it has, but it struck me as very easygoing because no one ever asked me to do anything very specific about it.
0: Was there a picture that you had in your head as a kid of what God looked like or where God lived?
1: You know, I mean, I would say that feels like a very, um, that also, that felt like a kind of like a thing you learn in school, that God is some dude and he's got a beard or whatever, or like, you know, you see in the movies kind of thing. Um, It didn't, you know, I, I remember thinking as a very young child that, that, you know, my, my grandparents, when they would pray, they would, you know, they would have a stone at the end of their prayer mat. And I kind of felt like that that God was like in that stone, um, and uh, y- you know, and they were bowing their head and and, and touching the stone, and um, and it was pretty. It felt like um, it also, you know, it also looked like a CrossFit workout. You know what I mean? So God was like in the stone, and there was like this pretty ritual that kind of went with it, and it kept you kind of healthy. <laughs> like
0: it was like a workout. Yeah. All right, so here, let's hear the next question. This one's about creation. My name is Kylie. I'm a five-year-old. And um, why did God create so much people like 100? Like, what? How would there be 100 people? People? Bu- 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 people? Bu- 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 people? People? Why did God create 100 people? It's so much.
1: <laughs> okay. I actually think there's a really simple answer to this question, which is that you need, like, God realized that, you know, in order for people to start dancing, he needed to have a critical mass. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like when you go to a club or something and there's just sort of a few people like lining the walls, nobody's going to get out and dance until there's like exactly enough people for there to be that tip over moment where people are like, oh, it's safe to dance now. There's enough of us here. Um, And so basically I think God created so many people so he could get the party started.
0: In a minute, Nagin goes all fashion police on a six-year-old. Don't go away. <laughs> We're back with Nagin Farsad and your kids unanswerable questions. Okay, so we also got some um questions that are just like plain old silly. Yeah. So, so here's the first one. My name is Sophie and I'm 6 years old. What will happen if you you ate a fire and you had uh, Clothes made out of a couch. Sophia wants to know what will happen if you eat a fire and your clothes are made out of a couch.
1: Okay, well, that's a really good question. I think so first off, if you're eating fire, then that means that you're part dragon. I mean, I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> and, you know, maybe you had an uncle that had like dragon genes or whatever. And I passed on dragon, you know, something there's dragon genes in your family, although it's a recessive trait. So it's like pretty rare. Like be, like having dragon in you is as rare as like being a redhead or something. So, um, so I think first off you have to determine like if you can even eat fire. And it's and most people cannot. Um, if you can, fire and you are part dragon, Um, if your clothes are made out of a couch, what you do need to worry about is like on a fashion front, like what are you doing wearing couch (laughs) materialed clothing? You know what I mean? Because it's like rough and bulky and like maybe too structured and it's like not flattering on most people or dragons. Um, So I think that's kind of like a greater question that you'd need to resolve.
0: One other way that you could eat fire is by joining the circus. There Aren't there fire eaters True. in the circus? Yeah, yeah.
1: They uh, slick up their mouths. <laughs> this, is, this is all technical uh, lingo here with something that helps them swallow the fire, you know, so they can kind of like take on a dragon-like quality, but it's so fleeting, you know. And again, I think I just generally wouldn't recommend it.
0: Right, would you recommend less wearing clothes made out of a couch or trying to eat fire?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um you know, it's funny because that's it's like a Sophie's choice situation right there because clothes made out of a couch just do sound um aesthetically unpleasing, which is like you know, which is like something you don't want to do that to the world as like a calf someone you know't have to look at that person but uh but yeah, I mean eating fire um. It just feels, like, dangerous on the throat. Definitely. Yeah.
0: Okay, so now we have another question. Um, this one comes from a woman named Dorothy. Um, she's actually 34 years old now. Uh, but but the, the story goes that when I was about three, I was in the car sitting next to my dad, just driving along. And I turned to him and I said, Dad, do witches have green vaginas? Apparently, he had to pull over because he was laughing so hard. But I don't think I ever got a straight answer from him. So I was wondering if uh, your guest could help. Can
1: you um, help? Yeah. I mean, this is like one of those classic, like, do the drapes match the carpet question. Right. Um, you know, which is a question that you're definitely going to ask For any kid who's asking this question, um, you know, it's something that you're going to revisit in your lifetime as like a 19-year-old drinking some Pabst Blue Ribbons or whatever at a pool table um, or whatever the equivalent of a pool table is in the future. It's probably a hologram, whatever. The acoustics are probably (laughs) made out of laser beams. But anyways, um, so the Wicked Witch of the West, according to MGM movies, is green. Uh, And the answer to that – Question is, uh, her vagina is also green. Um, so it, you know, so the 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 face drape does match the vagina carpet. <laughs> um, however, I think what's really striking, though, and what most people don't realize is that the nips—they're purple.
0: The nips are purple. <laughs> figured that was a good place to end today's unanswerable questions. But I gotta say, we can't get enough of your kids' voices. We love having them on the show. So we've come up with a way to hear more of them and more of you. We want to hear your kids ask you some actual answerable questions. And we want to hear your answers. This is essentially your kid playing journalist with you. Okay, so here are the questions that we've picked. What's something I don't know about you? And if you could live my life for one day, what would you do? Kind of like Freaky Friday style, right? And since things are always best in threes, we want to encourage your kid to ask you a third question of their choice. Maybe a great, would you rather, like, would you rather be able to fly or be invisible or, you know, that classic, would you rather eat fire or wear clothes made from a couch? So that's the deal. Get out your phone, get their questions and your answers recorded, then send it to us at audio at com with the subject interview. Again, this is a lot to remember, so you can find it all laid out nice and simple at our website, com. And if you don't have kids, ask your parents the questions. We want to hear these things from people of all ages. So go to com and get started with these interviews. It's a great thing to do this weekend. Our favorites are going to wind up on a future show. Thanks so much to Nagin Farsad for fielding the unanswerables today. Nagin has a podcast of her own called Fake the Nation. It's a comedic political roundtable. You want to hear more of Nagin, right? I did think it was interesting that the person who asked this question about the green witch, her name was Dorothy.
1: Shut up. It's true. Wow. So she had seen that movie some
0: number of times. That's right. And
1: thought about the witch's genitals.
0: Does your kid ask you questions that you can't even begin to answer? I know they do. All kids do it. We are always collecting unanswerables. So if you've got one, leave it in a comment for this episode. That's episode 111. This podcast is produced by me, Hilary Frank, with Abigail Keel and Kristen Clark. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Carum and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our theme music is by the Batteries Duo. We get editorial support from Anne Marie Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Rekha Murthy. Special thanks this week to Gianna Palmer. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode about one of my best friends and her family. My great-aunt was a fortune teller, and they stuck her in the pantry with, you know, a bowling ball or something. And, and my, my uncle was a clown and was utterly terrifying. Fun runs in Kirsten's family, but so does something else. We'll be talking about that next week. Don't miss this show. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we're looking for your stories. And we're really excited about this kids interviewing their parents thing. So go check it out or send us anything about your kids or your parents. Go to LongestShortestTime.com and submit your story.
1: Friends, why not take a trip to Nation, where hours of listening pleasure await you. Hours made up of moments. Moments like these. Dear Lord. Occupied. Uh,
0: Oh, (laughs) sorry. There's always room in this stall for two. Hello? Hello? Welcome to Bathroom Charge. Ch- to what, to what? <laughs> bathroom church? <laughs> bathroom church. Char- That's oh, right. It's a hey, we're
1: to the bathroom.
0: <laughs> hey,
1: Welcome.
0: Lord, we'll come together. For Luke. me, I had two people who have questions for God. Do you have? Quit your God. Oh, he turned into a chicken kind of a div- God. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Listen to Nation with me, Paul F.
0: Tompkins, on Earwolf, iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app.
1: Stand up. You sing Earwolf? Yeah. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com
0: fo